you know, you imagine major hurricanes heading right towards us. I knew right then it was like, all right, we're either staying right now or leaving right now. And if we're staying right now, then what's going to unfold in front of us is going to be an absolute chaotic show. <laughs> it, was. It, it was. It lived <laughs> up to every bit of that expectation and more. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. Happy to have you this evening. And uh, we are excited about tonight's show. We are joined by Jonathan Petramala and Brandon Clement, who have uh, created a documentary, Price of Paradise, Surviving Hurricane Ian, which will be released on April 28th. And just recently, Hurricane Ian, the name Ian, was recently retired from the hurricane list because of the death and destruction that, uh, that it caused in Southwest Florida and just the impacts that it had throughout the area. So uh, we're going to talk about that tonight and, and kind of dive into uh, what these gentlemen saw um, as they were documenting uh, Hurricane Ian. So Brandon, Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I guess the first question to you guys is what, what did you go into Hurricane Ian saying like, we're going to film this documentary or did you just get go in to get footage and you're like, you know what, we should turn this into something. Well, we first went to Tampa and Jonathan's house because we thought it was going to get hit. Yeah, that was that was the main. <laughs> I was preparing. Yeah, I was preparing for uh, a direct hit on St. Pete. First, it would have been the first real hurricane that area has seen in over 101 years. So, yeah, that was step one. And then it drastically changed by the Sunday before Ian. He has the idea. Hey, you know, because at that point, if you remember, the track was supposed to be going either to Tampa Bay or to the north to the mm -hmm. big area of Florida. And so if that was the case, everybody's going to be talking about this hurricane, but there's going to be no video of the hurricane. So we decided to hop on a plane to Cuba. And so that's where we intercepted Hurricane Ian was in Western Cuba and Pinar del Rio. And the, and the documentary idea, it, it was already in place from 165 miles. The, the documentary we did on the Western Kentucky tornado hit Mayfield. So we had already done that documentary, like, all right, well, this next one, let's kind of focus on what we want to do going into it. So we had some idea we would be doing it. But at the time, you know, it's a cat one, uh, cat two, some models showing three or four, some of them showing tropical storm, depending on how far north it went, how much shear came in. So it's still a ton of questions. So when we jumped on the plane of Cuba, there was some thought of it, but it wasn't a lot. Let's talk about Cuba for a second. Obviously, a different country. How, Your podcast isn't long enough. How uh, how how was that? I mean, how did how did the uh, the logistics of, of going to Cuba work out? Uh, it was probably the most difficult logistical situation I've ever had to deal with. And I, I I say that when we do logistics, that's the majority of what we do with 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 our jobs of you know traveling the country and sometimes the world to cover weather logistics is a real big part of what we have to do to get from point A to point B, make sure we're in position, get there safely. And uh, I mean, it was, when I say hurricane Ian was probably number five or six on my biggest concerns, that's legitimate. The, you know, a major hurricane is coming right for us. We're in a, you know, third world country of Cuba and the hurricane itself was literally so far down my list of concerns at that time, you know, cause we're worried about how do we get back to Havana or is our flight going to be, be there? Is it going to still be on time? we got to get back to Florida for the landfall. I think it's going back to my house in St. Pete. So there's a lot on our minds. It was a, it was a logistical challenge to say the least. Yeah. We, our cab driver drove us an hour and a half from, from Havana 
into Pinar del Rio where we wanted to go. And he was supposed to, we had him a room. He was going to stay with us the whole time and then bring us right back to the airport. And as soon as we got to this room or got to the hotel, his wife got sick. <laughs> oh no. Yeah. I had asked him on the way. I, I speak, I speak Spanish. Um, Cuban Spanish is a little more difficult. The accent's tricky. Um, I, I'm more familiar with like Mexican Spanish. So it's, it's a trickier accent, but I have enough that I can speak to them and I, I can have a conversation and, and I was like, you're not scared. And he was really, cause he was really relaxed. I was like, you're not worried about this at all. He's like, Oh no, I'm good. So there was no real concerns thinking that this, this cab driver who we were able to meet through a friend in Havana and took us that hour and a half drive to Pinar del Rio to the West. Um, it didn't really think like it was going to be a problem. And then of course, right when we get to the hotel, I said, Hey, just stay right here. We're going to go get the hotel hotel room situated and where you can park your car, et cetera. He's like, Oh, I'm not staying. My wife's sick. I got to be back, but I'll be back tomorrow. <laughs> so, so at that moment, we have to make a decision. Are we going to stay in Pinar del Rio or are we going to get right back in his cab and go back to Havana? Because there's, you know, you imagine major hurricanes heading right towards us. What's the transportation situation going to be the next day? I mean, they can get gas on a sunny day. So I knew right then it was like, all right, we're either staying right now or leaving right now. And if we're staying right now, then what's going to unfold in front of us is going to be an absolute chaotic show it was. It, it was it lived up to every bit of that expectation and more uh jonathan turned to me at one point when the back of scam cab and I, I have stories i could go for hours and they're just unbelievable and he just turned to me and goes it's just a, a shame we don't have a documentary crew filming us right now i said it was a criminal it was criminal criminal it was criminal we didn't have a documentary crew following us just because of the the things we went through, I mean, it was like, it was a Hemingway hurricane, you know, it was something that Hemingway would write about just the experience itself, the logistics, the people, the scams, you know, I've the been situation. to Cuba, the situation I've been to Cuba um, three times. Now, the first two was right after we were allowed to kind of go back in and they kind of thawed relations with Cuba. And it's a different place now. It's, there's a lot of desperation there. It's really, really gone downhill to the point where anybody you talk to say it's the worst it's ever been there. So the, there's a lot of desperation and we did things, you can do things in Cuba where I would never do it in Mexico or, or South America, like Colombia or something. And even then we, we almost were robbed. We were almost, you know, uh, I got, I got definitely detained by the Cuban military police at one point. So, you know, there were some situations, <laughs> there were some situations that we came across that were something that, you know, again, Hemingway would have written a novel about the, the main thing I'm curious about is whether this cab you're talking about was a 57 Chevy. No, it was a 59 Fairlane. It was a 57. Yeah. So, so, so that was the biggest concern, of course, because we're the, the hurricane comes through. It's really strong. It's making landfall in, in Pinardo Rio. Um, right around 5 a.m. is really the peak, the peak of the eye wall that was coming in. And this was kind of our first sign that that this was not going to, to kind of unfold as how we expected. Cause you could imagine internet is very tricky in Cuba to say the least. And so it was tough for us at that point to kind of track where it was, but apparently what had happened when we made the plans to go, we expected to be at the, at the very most on the East side of the storm. And instead we're dead center. It, the, the storm had shifted to that point to where we literally, you couldn't have hit more dead center of the, of the eye of the hurricane as it passed over us in Pinar del Rio. And so that first was the indication that this storm is making that shift and there's a, li a likelihood it's gonna make that Charlie path, right? 
but you know, we had to go through it. We went through it. It was, it was pitch black. Our hotel did have power. It was, I mean, it was built solid as a rock and it, it handled it really well. Um, there were problems, you know, windows were getting busted open. They were pushing couches against the giant French, beautiful French doors in the lobby, trying to hold those doors from busting open and stuff. And, and there was a lot of fear from the, the locals. And, you know, they're of course concerned about their own homes. Um, the town itself, it was really sad to see the next day when you were, we were able to walk around during the eye, people are, are grabbing corrugated metal. They're grabbing some um, things and they're not cleaning the streets up. They're salvaging for their own home. So they're, they're taking that, that corrugated metal that had been blown from somebody else's roof and they're going to go put it on their own roof. You know, I mean, that's the kind of poverty we're talking about. So um, a lot of trees down, power lines down, and then the backside of came in and you'll hear from others that were in Florida for the backside of Hurricane Ian. It was ripping. It was a, a significant backside of that storm. And we were able to get video of the backside of the storm. And, and we literally were able to send the video to the rest of the world and everything went out five minutes later and we had no oh, internet. Wow. So, I mean, it was like, we sent the video out, all the networks had it and then blackness. And then how do we get back? Um, like I said, we were almost robbed in one cab just to make a long story short. Um, and then we came across this car, had a Mexican flag in the windshield. And I told him earlier, I was like, man, if we could run across this guy, that's going to be great. Cause I'm going to be able to talk to him a little bit better. And lo and behold, we came across the guy. He was a guy from Mexico. He lived in Texas, lives around Austin. Oh. And he was visiting his girlfriend and he had a car and we're like, he's like, all right, can we give us a ride? He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go grab your stuff. And so about an hour later, he comes to us. He's like, we don't have enough gas. <laughs> like, and there's no way to get gas because all the power's out, you know, it's just been hit by a major hurricane. And in the best of times, as you mentioned, Cuba doesn't have gas. Like it's just bad. Mm -hmm. And when you say no gas, this car, it's, it's, it's the size of a go-kart with a little luggage rack <laughs> in the back, but it said range 16 kilometers. So it's like, this guy must have three tablespoons of gas. <laughs> uh, he did have a, but he had a connection. As I said, he, he'd spin that area enough that, um, he, you know, the, the best job to have in Cuba is to have those 50s, 1956 to 1959 Chevy or Ford Fairlane. And um, so one of the one of his contacts, that's what he was. He was a taxi driver. He drive, drove one of those beautiful 1950s eras car. And um, he answered the phone, which was a great step. And the guy's like, he's like, all right, he's going to be here in like 40 minutes. I'm like, OK, you know, at this point, we were kind of hedging our excitement. That right. is this guy really going to show up? Is he really going to come? And about 50 minutes later, nothing. And I was like, we were really starting to wonder if we're just going to basically move to Pinar del Rio at this point. <laughs> we knew if we didn't get out right then, it, we we're going to be there a long time. Yeah, it's going to be bad. And um, right around that time, I'm asking the guy, I, I see a flash of this, like that seafoam 1950s era car green in the corner of my eye. I go, what kind of car does this guy drive? And he's like, that's a 1950, I think 57 Ford Fairlane. And I was like, what? That's it. He, this pulls up and it's this beautiful classic car. And we, I, I probably one of the best moments of my life to see this guy. <laughs> and it was also one of the most surreal trips back. You know, um, there was a lot of damage, trees down, power lines down. You know, we've been in a lot of storms and a lot of aftermaths. And just to be in the back of a of this beautiful classic car going around hurricane damage was just surreal. Yeah, right? we're shooting video of hurricane damage in in the car and and driving around doing contraflow, trying to get one side of the decks. And he's working our way in, and we made it back to Havana. Yeah, it was wow. it was wild. But also, the the next problem was this was the first hurricane to ever knock power out to the entire island. And so by the time we got to Havana, 
all of the Western hotels were booked. There was no rooms available. It's dark by that point. Havana is pitch black. Um, the, the taxi driver, if you guys watched the, the water boy, do you remember the water boy, the Cajun coach? You know, yeah. like that, but in Spanish. So <laughs> was nil. There was, it was impossible. And so he's frustrated with us. We're frustrated with him. And he pulls up on this dark street in downtown old town Havana. And, and we get out. He's like, you got He's like, emotions me to get out. And lo and behold, it's these people that have uh, what are called Casa Particulars, which are um, apartments that the government gives licenses for that people could rent. It's kind of like Airbnb before Airbnb, but in Cuba. And uh, this guy spoke English, really, really nice guy. Um, and we had a place to stay, which was amazing. And it was within walking distance of the Western hotels. So we could walk over and it felt like trading places where, um, you know, the, the people are eating lobster and, and steaks and smoking cigars and drinking wine. And we're on the outside in the cold, like, please let us in. <laughs> and they wouldn't, they wouldn't let us in. We were like trying to bribe them money. Like he, he's like lots of money, lots of money. They wouldn't let us in. So we didn't have internet at that point again, for most of the day, people don't know if we're alive or dead at this point. And uh, I saw yeah, like, we, we need the internet to get home. Uh, so that yeah. was like, that was everything. Cause again, the flights had been canceled in Southeast Florida. And that's the only way to get back. Tampa, Miami, Fort Lauderdale, those airports are the only flights to America out of Cuba. And um, I saw a couple of guys coming in and they looked like Westerners. I was like, hey, do you guys speak English? And they did. And they're from Amsterdam and uh, the Netherlands. And they said that uh, I was like, can I log on to your Wi-Fi? And they're like, yeah. So they just let me you know, use their hotspot on their phone. And we were able to have internet for like 10 minutes. They were super nice guys. I was able to get in touch with my wife and kind of start coming up with a plan of like how we're going to escape Cuba at this point, because mm -hmm. I know that the airport's going to be a disaster since all these flights are being canceled. And, but I also know that there's different ways to get out of Cuba. We can, we don't have to fly back to America. We can go to um, the Bahamas or we can go to as what we ended up doing, which was we flew to Mexico to get out of Cuba. And that's just the first part of the leg of the trip. Yeah, that's just, that's just our, that's our Arcadian story. Yeah. And, get into what, and we barely even touched on that in the documentary, really. Um, because again, the main impact was happening in, in Fort Myers. You fly to Mexico and then what, what, what happens from there? We uh, flew into Merida, Mexico. We ate an amazing meal, had an amazing shower, and had an amazing night's sleep in a nice Hilton. <laughs> and then hopped on the plane the next day to Houston, to Panama City, rented a car, drove to Tampa, picked up my car, drove straight to South Carolina, did the South Carolina landfall, and then drove through the night to get back to Fort Myers because they were lifting the TFR too. So we could start getting aerial stuff. And I had a friend, Barrett, down in, in Florida, and uh, they took us out on the boat and went to Sanibel and, and Captiva and uh, I think he was the first one to step foot on on Sanibel after. So it was um, it was just nonstop Florida from there. Yeah, I mean, it was a marathon. You can imagine circumnavigating the Gulf of Mexico, essentially from, you know, Cuba to get it back around and make that drive overnight. Lack of sleep. We, you know, we really had one meal all week until, you know, we got there. The the landfall in South Carolina, you know, I mean, it obviously caused quite a, quite a few impacts. Got some crazy videos some flooding there near, near Georgetown, you know, from the surge. And then to make that drive back and, and we got there right when the TFR was able to lift. So he was able to do what he does better than anybody. I think the drone video of the aftermath. Mm -hmm. And um, I was kind of able to get on the ground and start telling some stories. And again, at this point, we're like, 
we think we have a documentary at this point, right? You, you go back to your first question, just because of the, the scope of the damage there was so significant. Um, we weren't able to get onto Fort Myers Beach at that point, but we're right off the coast on a boat and he's droning and we're seeing the images. And that's when, you know, the wheels really start to turn and it's like, okay, we got to get going. Yeah. The framework was built at that point is like, all right, now let's, let's start digging for the stories. And, and that's when we came across, we saw, of course, we saw Max's video, Max and Rigsby's video of the surge cam right away. Uh, it's Max Olson and Aaron Rigsby and that surge video told its own story and it's like all right that's amazing video but then we found out there were people in it and then we got in touch with them and then it started snowballing from there and it turned into just one incredible story after the other and somehow it all tied together and 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 with andy Coates who um shoots a lot of the video with us and sets up the interviews and does all the editing um he's just like he's just drooling waiting to get back to the edit bay he knew we had something really good before we even started uh the editing process and jonathan was dying to write a story for it because he's like all right i know how this is i know how this is gonna play out just in his head already he's like when a really good stories write themselves and that's what we had and it, it was a story that i mean i've never seen this before we see this this absolutely viral video, right? The house floating away in the surge. Nobody's ever seen video like that before ever. And then we find that there are people inside. Oh, and then we're able to interview these people. Oh, and then we find the people whose home that they ended up floating to. And that's how they survived in these other people's home. We find, we find these, this couple and during the hurricane, they actually saved other people. So it, there's just so many moving parts to this that seem so scattered and we're able to bring it together and to tell these stories, just each story individually would be a story that you would sit on if it was on a newscast and just like stare and be like, I can't believe I'm, this is what this person's saying, right? And we have all of that put together in this hour. And I mean, we could have probably made a longer documentary, honestly, but the, just the, the stories and the the people that we were able to find just just amazing and then we have the visuals to back it up watching the trailer um you said the storm surge in itself that tells its story i mean when you all who are watching this and listening to this are able to see the documentary just to see how high the storm surge was amazing and then uh you guys sit down with the gentleman here um he just he wrote it out and it's just to hear hear the little snips that that i've heard it's just amazing stories that all these individuals who who wrote ian out and and survived i mean it's just it's it's awe in all of, of hearing their story of, of what all went on well everybody's like man these people are stupid they should have left but in the documentary you see why they didn't mm-hmm. uh, and it, it dates back to charlie and some of the practices the law enforcement and stuff had in the area blocking residents from getting back to their homes and for weeks and sometimes months. And a lot of times, or a lot of these people out there remember that and they're like, they're going to do it again. So um, that's exactly why they stayed. And uh, it, it also shows some of the practices that we think we're doing to, to make this, the public safer is actually endangering people and costing lives. And it's really clear. And I think that, it's very clear once you see the film that there's lessons to be learned from this because I, I I know you could point out a lot of the deaths that happened from Hurricane Ian. I blame Hurricane Charlie. Hurricane Charlie is the reason why a lot of these people died, and there there's a very there's numerous reasons. Not just 
they they would allow people back to the island of Fort Myers Beach. That's that's a big part, you know, because people want to know what's going on with the property, right? The worst thing often in any of these tragedies is not knowing. That's the worst part. Knowing sometimes a relief, even if it's bad news, even if it's the right. worst news, it's still a relief because you know. So that's that's one aspect of it. But another aspect that gets forgotten too is when a forecast is given, and maybe that forecast didn't verify for that specific area. It's just kind of like ignored, right? It's yeah. not really explained why that didn't happen. And so people take the, you know, and this is this is everyone. Everyone does this in their own life. You have personal experiences. And when that personal experience is that in this hurricane that was said that it was going to be X number of feet of surge and it's only Z number of feet of surge, you think that that's what this hurricane is going to be. Oh, well, in Charlie, this was how much surge we had. In Hurricane Irma, this is what we had. We can totally ride this out. Yeah, they say 15 feet, but we've been through this hurricane before because people take those past experiences and they, they relate it to what's coming where they don't really take into account that each storm's different. And, you know, I mean, people are like, well, it's Hurricane Charlie's path. Yeah, but I mean, this was a lot bigger of a storm than Hurricane Charlie, right? So these are things that I think that professionals can do a, a much better job at communicating to folks and maybe putting themselves in these people's shoes a little bit, a little bit more to understand where their perspective is. Because too often, not enough people are, are actually talking to people after these disasters, right? They're kind of looking at data, they're looking at the computer models, and it really we need to be focusing on people and be psychologists in a way, right? Why are people acting a certain way? Well, there's a reason why people act a certain way and we need to understand why that is. And a lot of times that's just by talking to them. Yeah, a lot of my, a lot of uh, chasers call me a Debbie Downer and party pooper. And cause I'm always like, eh, on the forecast, I'm like, no, stop hyping it, stop hyping it. But that's why, man, I see, mm -hmm. I see the impact it has on people's lives. And they hear the hype. They hear uh, even though even if the forecast was right for Charlie, in their mind they were in the eyewall. They mm -hmm. may have been sixty miles from the eyewall, and every mile matters. But in their mind, they saw Hurricane Charlie. They were in the worst part of it, and if that's all it was, then the next one's going to be okay, you know. And then when they hear the the fifteen foot of storm surge, and they only get three. Then they're like, oh, those people don't know what they're talking about and they ignore the future warnings. So it translates across all types of weather too. Something that's been discussed um, throughout the last several tropical seasons where they've been pretty active is the cone of uncertainty. Um, do you think that does good or does that do bad for the general public? But what's your thoughts on that? I think that is a 100% chaser weather nerd argument. <laughs> I think people yeah. don't pay any attention to it. I yeah, think they, I, they get an idea and they're until it's, it's a vague idea until that cone is, is 30 miles off the coast and they don't care. It seems people focus on the center part of that and they don't widen their horizon of, you know, it could fall anywhere in between. So, and when I made the comment weather nerd, I include myself in that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've been in that argument many times, but it's, uh, you'll see people preparing all the way up and down the coast so when the center line was closer to Tampa, you saw the frenziness was Tampa amplified. It was I mean, it was huge. And then as the track started shifting, so did the frenzy. So that when the center line moved, so they're definitely paying attention to it. There's some paying attention right. to it. But everywhere inside that cone, if there, there's people that are going to prepare for everything, there's people that just aren't going to prepare for anything. And I'm not sure it changes any of that. I'm really not. Yeah. yeah. But unfortunately, listen, man. 
you know, some of the biggest hype hypers in our fields, right. And in, in storm chasing and in weather, they get the most likes, they get the most shares, they have the most subscribers. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's chicken or the egg. What is that one memory that you'll take away from, from hearing these people's story and just doing the whole documentary? The probably the the least dramatic of the of the of the parts is probably the one that, that, that hit me the hardest. Uh area of Harlem Heights, uh, uh majority black neighborhood. Um that got I think almost seven feet of surge that kind of wasn't forecasted, a little inland of uh, some high high property value areas got built up around it and all of a sudden it shoves some water into it. And seeing people that had very little lose everything, have nowhere to go, have no way to get help, and trying to imagine how you recover from that was just I saw I've seen it before. I saw it we see I saw it in a documentary we did about uh disaster road along the coast of the I-10 at corridor in Houston after Harvey. And there's people still trying to recover from Harvey. But when you're you're seeing it firsthand, you're seeing it at that moment, and it's just it just breaks your heart. You just at loss what to do because it's like how how do these how do you help them you know and Mm -hmm. that's that's why we went there i mean we went to that neighborhood specifically because it was not in the the eye of the public at that point everybody was focused on fort myers beach rightly so i mean obviously fort myers beach is devastated and we focus a lot on fort myers beach but sanibel island you know there's no million dollar homes in this neighborhood at all but um it the hurricane definitely hit harder there um because they might not have lost a million dollar property, but they definitely lost everything they had. And so, you know, that's a very uh, touching and and they rolled out the red carpet for us when we were there. And by what I say, why I say it like that is that when we were looking specifically for this one story that we had heard after we got to the neighborhood and, and we met one of the neighbors, who's one of my favorite characters, you'll love him when you see the film, like he's just just has this magnetic personality. You just absolutely love him. And he was going around saving people's lives in that neighborhood. When we go to the house where one of the folks that he had rescued, these, this elderly couple, the son was there. He's like, can I help you guys? You know, because we're, you know, obviously don't live in the neighborhood <laughs> by the look of us. And he was so welcoming. And it was just when he found out why we were there and what we wanted to talk to his, his mom and dad about, he just bent over backwards. He's like, let me, he literally went and got his, his mom, who's very old. And it's like, please, t- you know, like, what can we talk about? Please, thank you so much for sharing our story because they felt forgotten. And that's the most important thing that I think we've learned in doing the documentaries we've done. And in any disaster we do, any stories that we tell, people want to be heard. They want, they don't want to just kind of be ignored. They want to have a shared experience. And with by by sharing their story, and by showing what they're going through, they hope that that there's some sort of connection with somebody sitting at home and that that real genuine humanity moment of, of like, they just want to be heard. Mm-hmm. And so we're able to, in a little way, help their voices be heard. And that means a lot to us. And, and that's the biggest takeaway, I think, from our documentary. I hope people will, will walk away and they'll feel something. And and in this day and age, it's so hard. I think when you watch a movie, you're do you really feel something a lot of times other than maybe unfulfilled after watching? Mm-hmm. I think after you watch this film, you will feel fulfilled. You'll go through all the emotions. The like I said, that one guy, you're gonna laugh. You're also gonna have tears in your eyes if you know you're gonna. There's gonna be parts that's really going to touch you, and there's gonna be parts you're just gonna be like, 
eyes wide open, mouth open, because you can't believe you're you're hearing what you're hearing and you're seeing what you're seeing. So I think that that this really does help amplify these people's stories. And they're definitely never going to be forgotten after this film. Well, guys, how can uh, how can our followers and, and listeners um, view the documentary and, and all of that? Well, you can find the trailer on my YouTube channel, WX Chasing. Uh, the documentary will premiere at the film festival in St. Pete, Florida on April 28th at, at the Sunscreen Film Festival. Um, from there... I don't know yet. That's where that's that's kind of just the beginning. So we'll we'll see. Yeah, we're, I mean, we're working on it. Of course, we want to get it distributed. Every everybody who does this and anybody who tells stories, we want pe- people to to see the stories. Right. That's the most important thing for me. It's about as many people as possible to watch the stories because we really put our heart and souls in. It. I I really feel it's a genuine. It's really a genuine kind of a story, and and I want people to to have an to be able to see this kind of storytelling. I think it's it's a different kind of storytelling. I really want as many people to see it. So we're working on that. But the Sunscreen Film Festival, April 28th, is the schedule right now of when it's going to premiere. And we're really excited about it. It's a really prestigious film festival. I, I've lived in St. Pete for, for a long time. And I've always admired the festival. And so they gave us a shot. And we're really excited to, to premiere it. And, and folks from Fort Myers can, can drive up to it, too, which is important to us. And also the timing of it, it's right before hurricane season. Hurricane mm-hmm. season's coming right up after that. So... Um, it, it, the timing of it's really good. And I think when people watch the film, there's that key, key component again of, I think it could save lives it, when people see that storm surge, it's going to open some people's eyes and hearts to the real dangers that happen with hurricanes. And that's the water. Guys, we're so appreciative of your time and look forward to hearing about, uh, the, the, the documentary coming out and, Hopefully uh, we'll be able to see it if uh, folks can attend the the film festival, but uh, Jonathan, Brandon, thank you for your time. And uh, we wish you the best of luck this year as you continue your chasing. And um, we hope that it's a relatively calm year, but I know that's kind of, you know, you, you want to at least have something to chase. So we hope that, uh, that that everything's good for y'all. And you don't have to worry about getting stuck in Cuba anymore. <laughs> uh, like I said, we wouldn't shade it for anything. But yeah, we appreciate you guys letting us on and, and talking to us. It's yeah. been fun. Yeah. Thank you guys both for having us and, and discussing the documentary. Yeah, we appreciate your time. And we appreciate you all watching us and listening to us here on the Carolina Weather Group. We'll be back here soon with another episode.